Welcome to Yale Cancer Center Answers with your hosts, Drs. Francine Foss, Anise Chagpar, and Stephen Gore. Dr. Foss is a professor of medicine in the section of medical oncology at the Yale Cancer Center. Dr. Chagpar is associate professor of surgical oncology and director of the Breast Center at Smilo Cancer Hospital. And Dr. Gore is director of hematological malignancies at Smilo. Yale Cancer Center Answers features weekly conversations about the research, diagnosis, and treatment of cancer. And if you'd like to join the conversation, you can submit questions and comments to canceranswers at yale.edu, or you can leave a voicemail message at 888-234-4YCC. This week, you'll hear a conversation about the role of aspirin in preventing pancreatic cancer with Dr. Harvey Risch. Dr. Risch is Professor of Epidemiology and Chronic Diseases at Yale School of Medicine. Here's Dr. Stephen Gore. Start off by telling me sort of where you are in the field and kind of what it is you think about and do as an epidemiologist in pancreatic cancer. So I've been an epidemiologist for three decades now. And I started off as a very quantitative person trying to use statistical techniques to understand the causation of disease. And after perhaps half of that time, I came to think that really the biological processes of human disease were more important than the statistical ones, and I've become much more of a biologist now. And that's kind of what I do, is I'm trying to understand the causation of human disease and how to prevent it and ameliorate it. And I got into pancreatic cancer a little over a decade ago because of a very peculiar paper that crossed my desk. I'm an editor of the Journal of the National Cancer Institute, and I received a manuscript to triage to to send out for for review concerning helicobacter pylori and risk of pancreatic cancer. This is the bug that causes peptic ulcers, right? That's right, and gastric cancer. And um, I... I tried to understand why in the world there could be an association between this organism, this bacterium, which colonizes about a third of Americans still even today, and it's asymptomatic for most people, why there could be an association between this and pancreatic cancer. And I quickly discovered that it does not colonize the pancreas. It doesn't get into the pancreas. It only stays in the stomach. And therefore, it had to do something biochemical or physiologic. And after working on this for about three months, I had some ideas about its biochemical uh, processes that were involved, and I got two studies funded by the National Institutes of Health to do large studies on pancreatic cancer and helicobacter in Connecticut and actually in Shanghai because they have a, a different kind of helicobacter pylori in their population, and it, ha- it works a little bit differently, and that keyed into our hypotheses. And we finished those studies actually this last fall, and we've published two papers now that have shown the associations with helicobacter and how they change the physiology of the stomach and how the acidity of the stomach is related to how the pancreas responds to that acidity and how that primes the pancreas to be at higher risk or lower risk in the case of China for risk of pancreatic cancer. And it's been a fascinating journey. Wow. So maybe you can walk us through that sort of point by point. So you you tell me that a a third, I think you said, of Americans are colonized by this particular bacterium. And and what is that doing that that is subsequently um, impacting what the pancreas is saying? Well, humans have been colonized by helicobacter for at least 50,000 years. How do we know that? 
because we have evolutionary information about the strains and how they distribute across all of the Western and Eastern world. And the evolutionary biologists characterize the how the genetic changes in the organism occur and how they spread geographically. And wow. so they can trace the evolution of, of Helicobacter as, an, as its own organism in parallel with the evolution of humans. Hmm. And it, it really is fascinating. Fascinating. But, and uh, so, so they've shown that Helicobacter has co-evolved with humans and spread with human migrations. So it's something that we've had in us for a long time. And for most people, it's asymptomatic. Most people don't know that they're carrying it. It's very, very few who actually have symptoms related to what the Helicobacter is doing in them. Okay. But it does something. It does do something. And Helicobacter comes in two major strains one that's more aggressive and one that's less aggressive. In the United States and Western countries, most people, I'd say it's about 50-50, about half people carry who, who are carriers of this organism. We don't say people are infected. We say they're colonized because it's such a natural thing. About half are colonized with the more aggressive strain and half with the less aggressive strain. Whereas in China, Almost everybody, perhaps 90% are of people who are colonized, are colonized with the aggressive strain. Hmm. The, now, when I say the aggressive strain, it, it's a strain that's, that's aggressive in its physiology, the way it interacts with the lining of the stomach. But what it does do for, the, for people is it shuts off their acid secretion in their stomach, the aggressive strain. Hmm. That fact causes atrophy of, of the lining of the stomach. It causes the, the stomach lining to shrivel and, and undergo pathological changes that predispose toward gastric cancer. And that's what's typically seen. And that's why gastric cancer is such a high, uh, frequent, has a high frequency in China and, and Japan and other Asian countries, because it's a very prevalent organism. Perhaps 50 or 60 or more percent of people in China are colonized. Wow. Whereas in the United States, we have the two varieties, the less aggressive strain, and the less aggressive strain increases gastric acidity and does the opposite of the more aggressive strain. And that's the one that's associated with increased risk of pancreatic cancer in Western countries. And that's what we showed, that if you're colonized with the less aggressive strain that increases gastric acidity, you have higher risk of pancreatic cancer. If you're colonized with the more aggressive strain that, has, that shuts off gastric acidity, you're, you have a lower risk of pancreatic cancer, but a higher risk of gastric cancer. So these are the evil twins. <laughs> I was going to pan say. Pancreatic cancer and gastric cancer. Either way, you're not winning out too great. That's right. Yeah. So how does, um, how does this increased acidity, what does that do to the pancreas that puts the pancreas at risk for developing cancer? The pancreas, one of the jobs, the, the two major jobs of, well, there's more than two, but the two major jobs that the pancreas does is it makes enzymes to help in digestion of food constituents. And it, in a much larger way, it makes fluid and bicarbonate, which is a chemical that neutralizes gastric acidity. So when the acidity of the stomach is released into the duodenum, the next part of its pathway through the intestines, it has to be, the acidity has to be neutralized, and that's the, the pancreas's job. And it makes up to two liters of fluid a day that is very alkaline because of the bicarb that neutralizes the gastric acidity. Okay. And the pancreas recognizes how much acidity there is in the food products and responds to that so that it makes more or less depending upon what it has to neutralize. But it turns out that the helicobacter modulates that. 
So it increases the amount of acidity even when the pancreas is resting if the the, the less aggressive strain is in, uh, colonized or it's, it's totally shut off when uh, the gastric acidity is shut off and therefore the pancreas is also shut off in its and making this alkaline substance to neutralize the acidity that isn't there. So the presence of this organism works to make the pancreas respond to the acidity that it's, is being modulated. Now, what's really fascinating is that one would think, so what? So why does this acidity matter, and why does it matter for the pancreas, even if it's changing its behaviors? Right. But the re- the, the the this was shown in experiments in hamsters in the late 1980s that when carcinogens that are known to cause pancreatic cancer are given to hamsters, but in a dose that's too low to cause the 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 cancers, but they were given the hormone that is used by the intestines to tell the pancreas to make more bicarbonate. When they're given that hormone at a physiologic level, then they overwhelmingly got pancreatic cancers. So the fact that the pancreas is stimulated to make more bicarbonate and more fluid sets its ductal cells, the cells lining the part, the glandular part of the pancreas that makes all this fluid, it sensitizes those cells to the presence of the carcinogens that get to the pancreas through the bloodstream, like mm. from smoking and from other sources. Wow. Uh, so it seems... Uh Kind of simple, but complicated at the same time. It's a, a few things going on, but it's all physiology, and physiology has scientific principles, and when you kind of lay them out and see which factor affects what, it works out straightforwardly. Yeah, so um, do you know, or is it known, um, what percent of pancreas cancer is associated with with uh, colonization with this particular bacterium? Is it 100% or? no. In fact, it's not that large because pancreatic, the causes of pancreatic cancer are, are somewhat diverse. And I would say perhaps 25% at the most of pancreatic, or 20% maybe is caused in association with helicobacter. But don't forget, in, in China, it's prevented by helicobacter. Right. So it's the opposite, but a, but a large fraction. That's why in China, pancreatic cancer is a relatively rare disease, and gastric cancer is very common, whereas here in the West, it's the, the opposite. opposite way, yeah. And uh, does the hel- helicobacter colonization I- interact with other risk factors for pancreas cancer uh, besides the carcinogens that you were talking about? It probably does, but we don't know how. Hmm. We know now that ABO blood group is also associated with risk of pancreatic cancer, just like it is for um, gastric cancer or stomach cancer. But how it works, we have no real ideas yet. But it's it's essentially proven there is now at least 20 studies that have looked at ABO blood group, both on the basis of measuring people's blood group from their red blood cells and looking at the genetics of ABO and, and seeing how the variations in, in the genes um, make the ABO, ABO blood group. Both kinds of studies all show the same thing, that people with blood group A have increased risk of, gas, of uh, pancreatic cancer, and people with blood groups B and AB have increased risk if they live in Western countries and don't have increased risk if they live in China. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So should people like myself or group A or blood group A um, be doing anything different to 
to assess our risk for pancreas cancer? It's not a big ticket item. So we're talking about... Lots of people have obviously have blood group A. Correct. It increases... Our best estimate now of increasing the risk of pancreatic cancer is about a 30% increased risk. Now, lifelong risk in Western countries of pancreatic cancer is about 1 in 60. So 1.5% or something. So a 30% increased risk is still going to be under 2% lifetime risk. It's there... By the time of age 40 or 50, you probably know some relatives or friends or connections of people who've had pancreatic cancer. Sure. So it's not rare, but on the other hand, it's not that common. Mm -hmm. But the more important factors are things like cigarette smoking, which is is a a major problem, Uh, increases risk of pancreatic cancer, chronic pancreatitis, and a few relatively rare uh, familial genetic conditions. Hmm. Yeah, so we we know that uh, cigarette smoking is kind of bad for everything, right? For a lot of things, that's yeah. true. There's not much. I, certainly in my field of leukemia, it's it's probably the the best established uh, uh, leukemogen uh, yeah. or leukemia causing agent, even though it's under recognized since leukemia is you know relatively rare compared to some of these other tumors that we're talking about. Um, well, that's fascinating. So, how do you um, how do you make these connections? Were patients uh, were was the population screened for colonization uh, with this bug? Did you have to do endoscopies? Uh, is this done by serologic testing in the blood? or well, We use serologic testing. We, in our studies, we do case control studies, which is that we identify a representative sample of everybody with pancreatic cancer that in a defined geographic area over a particular time period and interview them and get biological samples from them, blood if we can. And then for comparison purposes, we identify a random sample of the general population who are at risk of, of getting pancreatic cancer of similar ages, gender, ethnicity, and, and so on. And then we do the same. We interview them with questions about their medical history and occupational history and smoking history and things like that. And we get biological samples from the control people also. And then we compare what's different between the cases and controls, and in particular for the helicobacter, looking at serum or plasma assays to look at biochemical markers. Well, that's uh, that's fascinating. I'm going to want to pick uh, up on this and uh, elaborate a little bit more so I understand it better uh, after the break. Uh, but right now we're going to take a short break for a medical minute. Please stay tuned to learn more information about pancreatic cancer and eventually about aspirin and pancreatic cancer with Dr. Harvey Risch. Genetic testing can be useful for people with certain types of cancer that seem to run in their families. Genetic counseling is a process that includes collecting a detailed personal and family history, a risk assessment, and a discussion of genetic testing options. Only about 5 to 10% of all cancers are inherited, and genetic testing is not recommended for everyone. Resources for genetic counseling and testing are available at federally designated comprehensive cancer centers, such as Yale Cancer Center and its Milo Cancer Hospital at Yale New Haven. The Yale Cancer Center Cancer Genetic Counseling Program is a new frontier in the fight against cancer. The program provides genetic counseling and testing to people at increased risk for hereditary cancer and helps them to make informed medical decisions based on their own personal risk assessment. This has been a Medical Minute brought to you as a public service by Yale Cancer Center and Smilo Cancer Hospital at Yale New Haven. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Center Answers. 
This is Dr. Stephen Gore, and I'm joined tonight by my guest, Harvey Risch, uh, and he is uh, educating me, and I hope you, about uh, how uh, epidemiologists uh, study uh, complex things like pancreas cancer. Uh, we've been talking in particular about um, about the association between pancreas cancer and this, uh, this, this bacterium. Um, you were talking about case-controlled studies where, if I understand it correctly, you've got this group of patients who have pancreas cancer, and you've got a control group who I, I guess are matched similarly. Do you, you try to match these people yes, who don't matched, have pancreas cancer? They're matched on age, gender, um, ethnicity to some degree, and, and so on. And then, then you were saying you do sort of a, a survey about sort of what, what they've been exposed to and what, what they do for habits-wise and stuff? Yes, that's correct. We, have, we develop questionnaires that are... Uh, worked out to obtain as objective information as we can on specific questions for hypotheses that we uh, create in order to try to get at differences that are we think are ideologic that are causal between the cases, what causes the cases to be cases. And you're drawing blood tests as well to look at, for example, whether they have colonization with this bug. Yes. Right. And so then you're comparing uh, the st- the background or the associations in the people who develop pancre- developed pancreas cancer uh, from what so try to find out what's different between them and the people who didn't develop pancreas cancer. That's how it works. Correct. And how many how many people are involved in such a study? So we have in our Connecticut study about four hundred cases and seven hundred controls, and in our Shanghai study about eight hundred cases and eight hundred controls. So that you know, it's it's a lot, but it's not like um, I was picturing tens of thousands or something. Well, we actually are getting to that point. Uh, many disease groups, people interested in a particular disease like pancreatic cancer, have now formed consortia in which we participate, so that we can pool either the questionnaire information or the biological samples or both um, to do genetic studies and risk factor studies. And now we have in our consortial studies a number of of different uh, projects that have garnered perhaps 10,000 cases and 15 or 20,000 controls to try to get at much subtler effects. But the flip side of, of all this big science is that if you need such large studies in order to elicit small associations, the associations are probably not that relevant. They're interesting, and they can point in directions, but they don't capture a, lar- a large part of what the disease is really doing. You're looking for a bigger signal, really. That's correct. Yeah, and, and I guess with a bigger signal, um, if there was an intervention that could change that, you'd have a bigger bang for your buck, I guess. That is true, but the big studies do allow us to look in subgroups of people, for example, older females who've had diabetes or something like that, where we then would still need a large enough group to be able to have some statistical power to make our associations. And do your, does, do your, uh, excuse me, do your surveys um, ask things about family history and things like that? Oh yes, yeah. There, there. Um, there's a long line of development of these kinds of epidemiologic questionnaires for cancer studies dating back to the 1960s, and each one has evolved with both methods for eliciting the information well and objectively and minimizing the amount of time that these things take because they can take an hour or two even for, for some complicated questionnaires. Mm. So we do look at family history. We look at occupational exposures. Sometimes we look at dietary exposures. 
past um, diets, and medical history things that are related to people's behaviors, what medications they've used in the past, and that's how we got to the aspirin results. Oh, so tell us about that. I, I know that people have been uh, you know, eager tonight to, to find out about aspirin uh, and pancreas cancer since we've advertised that. So tell me about that. Well, aspirin has been examined as a factor involved in risk of a number of different cancers, particularly colorectal cancer. And when we did our study starting in, in 2006 or so, our first pancreas study, we knew that there was a literature about aspirin use and risk of pancreatic cancer, but it was unclear. So there were some studies that showed a little bit of reduction in risk and some that showed no association and one or two that showed increased risk. But given that the marginal cost of adding another question or two to an already long questionnaire is very small, we added questions about aspirin and, and other anti-inflammatory medications to our questionnaire, and so we got information about aspirin usage. And then when we analyzed this information, we were a little bit uh, surprised that there was as big and as consistent an association with decreased risk of pancreatic cancer as we find in our study. So people who take aspirin are at decreased risk? Is that that... Is, that's correct. Now, there is a literature that's not entirely consistent. As I said, there are studies that show that there are other studies besides ours that show decreased risk. And there are some that show no association, and there are some that show increased risk. However, one of the things about aspirin usage today and studies that have re acquired cases recently is that there's a natural experiment in the population about aspirin usage, and that is the usage of low-dose aspirin for preventing cardiovascular disease. So people who have chosen to do that have elected to do that generally because they feel that they're at increased risk of cardiovascular disease. And so they take a low-dose aspirin every day, which is not at the level of treating a, um, a condition that would otherwise use regular aspirin multiple times a day. You mean like rheumatoid arthritis rheumatoid or something? arthritis, chronic pain, something like that. So this has become a natural experiment that has occurred since the mid-1980s. And now we have both the fact that a sizable proportion of the population have been taking aspirin, as well as the fact that pancreatic cancer has a latency from the time that the initial cancerous changes occur until when it comes to diagnosis. And we know that time is somewhere between 10 and 15 years. So to do a study in the mid to late 2000s applies to behaviors that were occurring around 1990 or 1995. And so that was in the era when aspirin usage was on the uptake for this low-dose aspirin usage. And so we were placed in our study at the relevant time to examine whether this association exists or not. And that's what we found, that aspirin usage for um, more than a year or, or longer was associated with a 50% risk, cutting the risk in half. Well, that's big. Cancer. Yes, it's it's substantial. And can you be sure? It would seem to me that the people who are taking aspirin are people who at least think that they are, their physicians think they are at higher risk for cardiovascular disease. So could this not be an association between a, a protective effect of cardiovascular disease or risk of cardiovascular disease and pancreas cancer? It seems unlikely. Uh, we do know from some recent work that we've been doing that aspirin usage, both low-dose and regular, decreases uh, inflammatory cytokine levels in the blood. So we know that it's having a physiologic effect, and it's in the direction we think it should be. 
that uh, it works as an anti-inflammatory agent, and inflammation is, is hypothesized to be an instigating agent for changes of cells from normal to precancerous to cancerous kinds of changes because cells under inflammatory circumstances tend to multiply more frequently, and each cell multiplication conveys a slightly increased risk of transformation to a cancer cell. And so the more that happens, the faster that it happens, the more risk at a cellular level. And eventually, if that happens to a large degree, it could transform the, the risk to some sizable amount, whereas the aspirin prevents that by reducing inflammation. Hmm. So we think that's the mechanism involved. So it makes biological sense as well as kind of an empiric observation. Yes. Yeah, makes sense. So, I mean, this sounds uh, almost too good to be true. So should everybody just be sort of doubling down and getting themselves some aspirin? And should everybody be taking aspirin, do you think? Well, aspirin for most people is okay, but there are people who will have negative side effects from it, either from bleeding, strokes, uh, and so on, that, uh, or GI bleeding, that um, are serious risks, serious side effects, but for a small minority of individuals. So one has to weigh one's own personal risk of the different conditions that you have to deal with. So if you have a risk or a family history of increased risk of cardiovascular disease and you're taking aspirin in order to prevent cardiovascular disease, presumably because of its effects on clotting, reducing blood clotting, then the fact that you're taking aspirin is good for your prevention of pancreatic cancer. But it, to take aspirin to prevent a disease that occurs in one person in 60 whereas it increases risks of, of clotting-related disorders like strokes and, and, and intestinal bleeding, I'd say it's, the balance isn't so clear-cut. So if somebody is at high risk of, say, colorectal cancer and is taking aspirin for that, then they're preventing pancreatic cancer. But one has to evaluate in, I think, really a quantitative way what the real risks are that a person has, is facing and then evaluate how much risk and benefit adding aspirin to that regime actually causes, how, how beneficial it would be under that circumstance. So even though aspirin is over-the-counter and an 81-milligram aspirin seems pretty innocuous, like any other medical intervention, people should really be discussing this kind of choice you know, with their physicians or their uh, healthcare professionals, it would seem. So on an individual basis, it is pretty innocuous. But we as epidemiologists see an entire population, and so we know that in a population, any particular individual is unlikely to be affected, but there will always be some people in the population who will have negative adverse events from taking aspirin. So we have to base our conclusions on a quantitative way of evaluating things, and that's why we think people should optimize their own personal choices by looking at things quantitatively. Hmm. Now, haven't there been studies of aspirin in preventing, I think it was colorectal cancer, if I'm not mistaken, and uh, and um, I, I don't really remember how those studies worked out, but, but I seem to remember they were kind of disappointing. Am I remembering that incorrectly? I think, no, I think that aspirin usage is beneficial for reducing the um, development of polyps that that are precancerous stages for colorectal cancer. And I th I'm pr pretty sure that that's accepted now as a beneficial effect of aspirin. Uh, and I think that it applies to the low-dose baby aspirins that people take as well. 
How much it prevents colorectal cancer in a quantitative way, I don't know, but I'm sure that it has a beneficial effect. Yeah, so this is, uh, shows my living too much in the world of uh, leukemias and liquid tumors and not keeping my <laughs> finger on the pulse so much of uh, other common uh, solid tumors. Um, so that's interesting, and I, I, I believe they've also studied sort of aspirin-like drugs like some of the so-called COX-2 inhibitors. Well, we also asked people about what are called NSAIDs, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory medications. Like Advil. Like Advil, uh, right, uh, naproxen, and and, and there's a whole spectrum of of them. And what we found is no associations at all. Really? Uh, As opposed to aspirin. Now, there's two possible reasons for that. One is that they're involved in the biochemistry of, of clotting and the other effects of aspirin differently than aspirin itself is. And the second is there's been no natural experiment to take those medications like there has been for low-dose aspirin. So in the general population, people take those medications for indications for inflammatory problems that they're trying to prevent. Whereas, Just like regular-dose aspirin, they're not taking it in a more casual way and in a much more widespread way like low-dose aspirin, which is, as I've said, the natural population experiment that we can tap into for our studies. So for both reasons, the NSAIDs don't seem to be involved in disease risk in the same way that aspirin itself is. Hmm. Uh, and we're going to have to wrap up, but is, am I understanding you correctly that perhaps that's because the people who are taking these non-steroidals already have a very high inflammatory environment uh, that's hard to suppress? That, that's in, entirely possible. Dr. Harvey Risch is professor of epidemiology and chronic diseases at Yale School of Medicine. We invite you to share your questions and comments. You can send them to canceranswers at yale.edu, or you can leave a voicemail message at 888-234-4YCC. And as an additional resource, archived programs are available in both audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. We'd like to thank the Yale Cancer Center for providing production support for this program, and we'd also like to thank Renee Gaudette, Emily Fenton, and the staff of the Yale Broadcast and Media Center. I'm Bruce Barber, hoping you'll join us again next Sunday evening at 6 for another edition of Yale Cancer Center Answers here on WNPR, Connecticut's public media source for news and ideas.